Long ago, when these ancient Grecian temples were new, hemp was already old in the service of mankind. For thousands of years, even then, this plant had been grown for cordage and coarse cloth in China and elsewhere in the East. For centuries prior to about 1850, all the ships that sailed the Western Seas were rigged with hemp and rope and sails. For the sailor, no less than the hangman, hemp was indispensable. A 44-gun frigate, like our cherished old Ironsides, took over 60 tons of hemp for rigging. including an anchor cable 25 inches in circumference. The Conestoga wagons and prairie schooners of pioneer days were covered with hemp and canvas. Indeed, the very word canvas comes from the Arabic word for hemp. In those days, hemp was an important crop in Kentucky and Missouri. Then came cheaper imported fibers for cordage, like jute, sisal, and manila hemp, and the culture of hemp in America declined. But now, with Philippine and East Indian sources of hemp in the hands of the Japanese, and shipment of jute from India curtailed, American hemp must meet the needs of our army and navy, as well as of our industries. In 1942, patriotic farmers, at the government's request, planted 36,000 acres of seed hemp an increase of several thousand percent. The goal for 1943 is 50,000 acres of seed hemp. In Kentucky, much of the seed hemp acreage is on river bottom land such as this, along the Kentucky River Gorge. Some of these fields are inaccessible except by boat. Thus, plans are afoot for a great expansion of the hemp industry as a part of the war program. This film is designed to tell farmers how to handle this ancient crop now little known outside Kentucky and Wisconsin. This is hemp seed. Be careful how you use it. For to grow hemp legally, you must have a federal registration and tax stamp. This is provided for in your contract. Ask your AAA committee man or your county agent about it. Don't forget. I remembered the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita, Vishnu, is trying to persuade the prince that he should do his duty and to impress him takes on his multi-armed form and says now i am become death the destroyer of worlds i suppose we all thought that one way or another Welcome to the return of the repressed. Hope you are all doing well in the summer heat. And if you are from from the far south of the equator, I as a person born and raised in Arctic lands envy you and the cold that you might be receiving. I just came back from my holidays down south in Kyushu looking for a farm. It's very hot over there, but uh, it's very hot over here as well in the Alps. So. Not that big of a difference. A bit windier down there, so at least you have that. 
and I did stay in a really nice old farmhouse as a trial for almost no money, which was great. They had solar panels, a lot of solar panels on the roof, and uh, so you could run the air condition on uh, solar energy alone, which was, you know, quite nice. I was probably the only electrical uh, applicant in there, except the uh, fridge, I guess. Um, so yeah, didn't have to feel bad about having the air condition on all the time, which was also nice. Don't have an air condition here, so <laughs> that was also better. Uh, I went uh, to the old Kamikaze airport, from which most pilots took off. Um, got some real fascist Buddhist Heaven's Gate vibes over there when I saw their bunk beds outside of the, uh, the local temple in these small triangular houses that were like half buried under the ground in which they lived uh, for the last weeks before they took off. Uh, I'll have to post also some uh, paintings, uh, not some photos of the paintings to, to show you, to give you an idea of what I'm talking about when I say Buddhist fascist having Heaven's Gate. But it was, it's really something like that. Now, of course, I also went to the ocean with my boy as the typhoon was coming in over Okinawa. He loved it and couldn't get enough of the waves and dancing in the rain with his papa. It was so lovely. It's really nice. <laughs> but uh, when the typhoon really hit, though, it was crazy for two days. We just had to stay inside in this old house with banging windows and walls. Um, and I mean, you really turn crazy. So eventually we just went to the supermarket in the closest uh, city and stood in the middle of it <laughs> to get away from the noise. I didn't even buy anything. I think I just got like, uh, yeah, some fizzy water. Uh, yeah, like a soda, a regular soda, like carbonated water, that is. That's what I like. Um, they have some kind of kindergartens, uh, similar to, I guess, like some Japanese Montessori over there. Um, since this was, you know, once the Satsuma era, or area, it was once the Satsuma era, and the, this is the Satsuma area. And um, it's always been kind of independent to the rest of Japan, and so has its pedagogy. It was, um, I guess, it's a bit um, Prussian. Like they have to do a lot of gymnastics, like walk on their hands, do like, uh, I don't know what they're called, but like when you do like somersaults maybe. Uh, and um, yeah, like jumping over um, these uh, wooden hedges, right? I really don't know what all these things are called in English, but um, yeah, a lot of gymnastics basically, which I guess, you know, it's good. I don't know whatever, what kind of pedagogy I would be providing. I did go to a Montessori school when I was a kid, so I get, it's also a bit Prussian, like you have to clean up after yourself and it's like quite organized. Um, but maybe I've lost some of that rigor, so it's good that he gets some contrast to, um, to his home life. I'll give him a lot of crayons and things to paint with though when he's ready. And um, yeah, so we visited three different kindergartens and now I think both of us are hooked on moving over there if we can only find a house by the time my contract runs out um, at the school here in the Alps. Um, yeah, I think that'd be a lot of fun. And of course, had a lot of time to write about the episodes um, of the last episode. 
I think I've tied it all together. In terms of our cannabis story, we have come a long way. And what I initially thought would be one or two episodes turned into an entire series of its own. I hope nobody's complaining. Uh, I will do some relabeling of the episodes to indicate that for future listeners. So please don't be too confused when you see new titles in the list. Um, maybe you can recognize it by the uh, app covers, which I spent so much time on. And they'll remain the same, obviously. Uh, and uh, what you just heard in the intro was the Hemp for Victory campaign, which temporarily postponed the prohibition on cannabis in the US during the years of the war. Now, why that was is what we will try to answer in this final episode as we close the door on cannabis and eventually open the gate to a new miniseries of its artificial successors. Developed through a new fascination of genetics, plant and animal breeding and the sub-microscopic of the new biology at the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute in Germany, run first by the one and only IG Farben during World War I and the Weimar, which we remember from our early episodes on the origins of synthetic fertilizers and biocides, um, before being taken over by that Ruhr cabinet, the suspect instigators of the Second War with their agricultural policies during the Wall Street plans for Germany's rearmament. And in the last episode we began to see in the Americas the outlines of a similar fascist cabinet, if you like, a story of US corporate colonialism coming back home, aided to a large degree, our story was, by the very informative book Gangsters of Capitalism by Jonathan M. Katz. I haven't got through the whole book, so I cannot give any definitive conclusive reviews. However, the way Jonathan has gone about writing the book is very inspiring. He has basically traveled around in the footsteps of the Marines and Butler and the route American colonialism took at the turn of the last century, visiting some famous and not so famous places and studying the legacy of whatever trace that brutal campaign has left behind. I especially liked the long anecdote about meeting officials of a small village on Samar, the third biggest Philippine island, which every year hosts a great theatre performance, reenacting the so-called Belangiga encounter. We get a description of a video recording of the show where locals with yellow dyed hair play uh, Yankee Marines and others the local heroes who fought in what seems to have been an extremely gory battle of Aboriginal resistance. I couldn't help imagining a streaming service with similar original retellings from the whole post-colonial world made into TV series. But uh, I guess that's not going to happen anytime soon, but we'll see. I also felt a great wanderlust, hoping that in the future if the show develops in the right direction, which it seems to be doing, um, I will say my thanks more properly later. Um, maybe I will be able to embark on the second 1000 day pilgrimage of my life, doing something similar and reporting back to you, the listeners, from long forgotten frontiers in the Asiatic corners of the world. I will probably have to split such a wandering up in smaller pieces this time around, now that I'm a father and whatnot. 1000 days is a, is a long time after all. Anyways, the story of Butler, 
is complicated. I don't really know what to think about it. The media reaction, which was generally, as far as I can tell, a complete Hurstian ridiculing of him, tells me there was probably more than something to his confessions. At the same time, I cannot help but to think that a threat of fascism probably could have been more useful to the involved industrialists than the actual full frontal nudity of the European fascist carnival. A political point which will reoccur in this episode in more detail, but which I have discussed before when talking about how the police state is a higher stage than the military state in the various stages of the Caesaristic corporate metamorphosis as described by Gramsci which is a bit counterintuitive at first, but so is a lot of what Gramsci tells us about fascism. Um, and that's important because we, you know, it's maybe said a lot these days, but people usually like to just say, well, people on the soft left, I guess, and, you know, on the right, they really have no idea um, that fascism is just, you know, everything that we don't like, <laughs> which, you know, if that's the case, then we get zero you know tools to use to to sort of um, analyze uh, social formations now butler's uh, later disillusionment with the military at the time of the coup is no secret in the butler folder of original documents which i went through on archives.com which includes his public whistleblowing to the New York Post in November 1934, uh, entitled General Butler Accuses NY Brokers of uh, Plotting Dictatorship in the US. Three million dollars bid for fascist army Bard says he was asked to lead 500,000 for capital putsch, US probing charge. It's a bit confusing the title, but yeah, you get the point which uh, together with his most famous work, uh, War is a Racket, are examples of his disillusionment, uh, which would later be shared by a senior Eisenhower in 61. Substantiating my point with the other side of that coin, since uh, one can very well have very little for the military whilst holding the same contempt for the police, I did find out in the Butler folder a lot of correspondence between the FBI and Butler where he addresses Hoover in almost embarrassingly heroic prose, waxing lyrically about how the FBI is the most important institution of America. The FBI is not the police per se, but, and this is a hauntingly interesting point, which flashed before my eyes as I stared at the chevron rank insignia of the doctors and nurses who belted my screaming self to a bed at a mental hospital somewhere on a hill in Hong Kong. Gramsci notes in one of his most more speculative instances that beyond the national military state of fascism and beyond even the police state once this Pax Fasces, if we shall call it that, has stabilized as it did with Franco, Chiang Kai-shek or for that matter the ruling families of Hong Kong lies what he calls the gendarme night watchman state. My understanding of what our Italian theorizing saint is envisioning here is that this is maybe not even a nation state, but rather a patchwork kilt of uh, corporate patronage kept in check by a private, extrajudicial, non-transparent monopoly violence. 
I mean, it is interesting to note, for example, that libertarians who wants to take away all institutions of the nation seldomly go so far as to take away the repressive state apparatus because, well, they know on what grounds the freedom of exchanging commodities is upheld. And Gramsci even makes some uh, notes about this gendarme night watchman state being rooted in libertarian or liberal early, you know, classical early liberal uh, ideology. And I think what he's envisioning basically is a state of affairs where policing is policed by a federal body which works in protection of the night. The red mixed with blue, that is purple, light of Caesar's 13th legion, as well as the Iberian Guardia Civil and the FBI, has certainly at times performed such a role above and beyond public parliamentarian distinctions. As Gramsci says at another point, though generally assumed to be a hallmark of democracy, the coalition government is actually a higher stage of corporatism, which may or may not develop further. So, yes, purple is not the color of democracy just because blue and red have been mixed together, as the centrists would have us believe. Nor is this idea of no institution but a repressive institution a very... I mean, that is not my idea of freedom anyway. Now, leaving speculations to the side of whether the Wall Street Putsch was a successfully avoided fascist coup which allowed FDR's stabilizing liberal conformism to continue, or if it was a false flag, ultimately of similar intentions, let's nonetheless recognize the conclusion of the last episode, that there was indeed a sisteristic clique of American industrialists and bankers which used the Marines as an instrument to, at least abroad initially, institutionalize fascist colonial regimes based on agricultural export. Butler says the following in his book, just to refresh our minds, quote, I helped make Mexico, and especially Tampico, safe for American oil interests in 1914. I helped make Haiti and Cuba a decent place for the National City Bank boys to collect revenues in. I helped in the raping of a half a dozen Central American republics for the benefit of Wall Street. I helped purify Nicaragua for the International Banking House of Brown Brothers in 1909-12. I brought light to the Dominican Republic for American sugar interests in 1916. I helped make Honduras right for American fruit companies in 1903. In China in 1927 I helped see to it that Standard Oil went its way unmolested. During those years I had, as the boys in the back room would say, a swell racket. I was rewarded with honors, medals, promotion. Looking back on it, I feel I might have given Al Capone a few hints. The best he could do was operate in three city districts. We Marines operated on three continents. In the Butler folder of his personal writings on archive.com etc., many of the agents of this series appear which cuts the author of Gangsters of Capitalism cited in the intro, among other researchers, ultimately summarize as being conglomerated in the Guarantee Trust. Granted, I guess nobody, no matter how invested in parapolitical research, knows all the connections of the fascist international, 
or even the American branch. And the more writers lay claim to such super organizational knowledge, the more suspicious I think we should be. Newcomers to the question, what is fascism? Question mark. Noble inquiry, which I have been asked on study circles and late at night bonfires by starry-eyed young heroes to be, can unfortunately be delayed and deviated, as one can suffer in vain a continuous stream of signifiers reached searching it, with everything from exhaustive visitors' lists of the Bohemian Grove to wannabe esoteric prose about the thirteen bloodlines of the Illuminati. All useful, but not always comprehensive. You know me. I prefer expansive abstract theory rather than particular names in a diluted soup. Though eventually, of course, the names are surprisingly few and reoccurring. However, in terms of our four main suspects of the cannabis conspiracy, remember, that is why we are gathered here today, the Guarantee Trust does lend itself useful since Hearst, Mellon, Anslinger and DuPont do make out some of the nastiest pistils of that ghastly plastic flower. So, to understand what is sometimes referred to as Friends of Morgan, let's take a little look at what the Guarantee Trust was and is, as it continues to serve today as a, what Freud would have called, Triebkraft channel for the increased synthetic privatization of nature. Here's a story about a man Might be hard to understand All the children start to sing about Man alive, we're 
in the decades that would culminate with the Paris Commune in 1871, an innovation in European finance was enhancing the bankers' power. The syndicate, elite groups of banks that practiced what the French called haute banque. Instead of floating bond issues alone, the banks pooled their capital to share the risk of underwriting. Later, after the end of the Victorian holocausts and the first modern crisis of overproduction during the 1890s, when the colonies starved in the tens of millions and entire generations in the developing world became mortgaged to chaotic, crazy quilt expansion of railway, which frequently produced more roads than traffic simply to boost watered stocks. The money trust hysteria began, born out of the wave of bank mergers. And by the turn of the last century, a phrase which I'm getting very used to, Wall Street was snowballing into one big Morgan-dominated institution. In 1909, when Ernst Shackleton's expedition found the magnetic South Pole and Robert Perry first discovered the North Pole and the Swedish Nazi explorer Sven Hedin as a first Westerner returned from having mapped Tibet by counting camel steps, I mean, surely no Tibetan never thought about that before. <laughs> None of which is directly related, other than some far-out reading about what the world globalist might actually mean. J.P. Morgan gained control of the Guaranteed Trust, which through a series of mergers he converted into America's largest trust. As such, the Morgan Bank became the foremost repository of old American money. The Guarantee Trust Company of New York was itself the result of a series of other mergers. First National Bank, National City Bank, National Union Bank, etc. And I guess primarily the National Bank of Commerce in New York. The country's biggest bank at the time of the founding of the United States National Banking System. A historical, political, economic structuring far more interesting than Normie Gold theories which took place in 1864, i.e. in the last couple of years of the American Civil War, which incidentally is also when the American labor market was created and the settlers became proletarians en masse for the first time. The original capital, the coagulated labor in the abstract of the Guarantee Trust, came from the Whitneys, the Rockefellers, the Harrimans and the Vanderbilt families all represented on the board of guarantee trust by family members throughout the period which we are discussing, and big players in many of the events which we have deemed necessary in previous episodes. All this is quite public information, and one really does not need to read about it in books which correlates it with the movements of celestial bodies, the metamorphosis of heavenly or netherworld beings, but if that floats your boat, by all means. Nonetheless, safe to say, I think, these were cosmic capital events which FDR's Secretary of Agriculture Henry Wallace warned against in his speech about the dangers of bringing Wall Street bankers to Washington. The Guarantee Trust, which today also involves Deutsche Bank and the BASF, would later during the Depression, when Henry Wallace said what he said, become one of the biggest experts on what the Germans is calling Tarnung, or camouflage, an expertise guaranteed learned from the infamous Bank für Handel und Schiff, 
also known as the von der Heydets Bank, a bank through which fascist Americans and Europeans established inter-nation circuits for the benefit of something other to mankind. One such European, the namesake, was Edvard von der Heydet, a Swiss banker and art collector who at one point owned Monte Verita, which you will remember as the Lebensreform commune from the Third Reich UFO short story which I wrote last Halloween, the visitors list of which reads like a who's who of pretty much the entire continental history of ideas at the turn of the 20th century. Literary figures such as Hermann Hesse of Der Steppenwolf, Erich Maria Remarque, author of Investen nicht Neues, Dadaist father Hugo Ball, H.G. Wells, one of, if not the, giant of British science fiction, poets such as Stefan Georg, Frida von Richthofen, later Lawrence, and the wife of that other Lawrence, dancer Isadora Duncan, painters such as Elsa Lasker-Schiller, and the psychoanalyst renegade Otto Gross, and of course the avant-garde conservatives Carl Jung and Rudolf Steiner as well as oppositional leftist figures, Kropotkin, Trotsky, Lenin and Erich Mühsam, one of the first murdered in Dachau after the hyenas branded his scalp with a red-hot swastika and kicked out all of his teeth, forcing him to dig his own grave, into which the anarchist later fell eternally, while in defiance singing the Internationale, when told that he would be spared if he sung the Horst Wessel lead, that is the Nazi anthem. Obviously I'm not saying all these figures were somehow involved in a fascist plot. It is just interesting for the purpose of illustrating how the Nazis already in the 20s began to appropriate culturally unifying signifiers. Very relatable since behind von Heydet and his bank we have Fritz Tyson of the Vereinigte Stahlwerke AG. This is the Fritz of the Ruhrlader, most sympathetic since the 20s to the NSDAP cause, and probably the one most responsible for a third category of camouflage methods beyond culture and finance, namely science, since he would, during the Second War, take over the official control of the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute from IG Farben. The world's bleeding-edge institute of a new up-and-coming set of scientific signifiers of plant breeding, genetics, and, you know, synthetics. But also of natural bast fiber research, that is, bast erforschung. A place of learning which, as I said, is where we are heading in a coming series of episodes. Maybe not the immediate next, since we might still need that break from fascism, which cannabis was supposed to be. Anyways, I'm talking about those three, four decades of gradually more insane conviction in the sub-microscopic, during which, hopefully, I will be able to show that the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute, via primarily Rockefeller Foundation money of the Guarantee Trust, had an American sister, the California Institute of Technology. A tale about something which I would like to call the green dossier of Operation Paperclip. Not as sexy as rockets and gravity's rainbow, I know, but though I haven't finished that book or know enough about Pynchon, I do know that it begins with talk about artificially grown bananas 
which if what I have been told about Pynchon by the PTC crowd is correct, it is not an arbitrary plot choice. But for now, let's point out that the uh, von Heydet Bank guarantee link also involves international political economic formations such as the Union Banking Corporation, which had its assets seized through the US Trading with the Enemy Act. Though unfortunately for world history, its founder, Prescott Bush, was not held properly accountable. It also involved, or involves, whichever you prefer, another bank which is the BIS, the Bank of International Settlements. But rather than confusing ourselves with too many names of banks, people and families that will one day be forgotten and which already mean little to those who struggle against their order with arms, let's attempt to get to know this world by way of prototypical theory objects, which for the sake of tonight's philosophical narration and parapolitical psychoanalytical understanding, we will have culminate in the indivisible remainder or vanishing mediator, let's say the master signifier of international fascism, acquainted to be called the Black Eagle Fund. In honor of the sea graves and my visit last year to the abandoned dark mountain Yamashita valve interior of the Japanese Alps, where the rocks are wet, the whole way is empty, the air is heavy, dense and filled with parasitical bats. Choosing this name I hope is not mere posturing, covering up a lack of details since Hegel is already whispering from the corner of my room behind a sliding door of Shoji that a sum is just a sum and any absolute principle of this kind is inevitably doomed to failure. Be that as it may, in the immediate geography and time space of where this fund to end all funds came to be with all that ancient gold of Asia, Gold which had been stolen by the Japanese Imperial Army as they looted tombs and old family castles and mansions all across their occupied territory. From millennium old king graves in Korea, some of the world's oldest bank vaults in China, to temples from before the Buddha in Thailand, and later hidden in forgotten sanctuaries and caves unknown to contemporary anthropology and archaeology, across the vast oceanic expanse of island Southeast Asia. I whispered about it before. It was there in the Philippines that Courtney Whitney became the initial boots-on-the-ground lawyer behind the setting up of the Black Eagle in the Philippines. The right-hand man of MacArthur, who with his Yankee renegade marine war machine, restole history's greatest war loot destined, together with Jewish gold teeth, etc., to pay for the Waffen expenses of every NATO Gladio cell. Not only did General Whitney also supervise, as we know, the eradication of America's number one natural hemp source, the Abaca, or Manila hemp, to prepare the market for something else back home, whilst undermining the economy of the world's longest fighting Maoist guerrilla, but actually, he even went on to ban cannabis in Japan during the Makjunta occupation of Hirohito's shrunken domains. Worth further mentioning, the Seagraves points out that George Atchon Jr., the department advisor in Japan who tried to guide the occupation along more liberal lines, was constantly together with his colleagues, 
harassed by General Whitney, as well as General Willoughby and Colonel Bunker, whom we know from the Unit 731 paperclip ratlining. In August 1947, shortly before the cannabis control law, the Taima Torishimari Ho was passed, when MacArthur's inner circle was making the final turn to the far right, Acheson decided he had to go back to Washington personally to report to the Secretary of State and the White House. His plane mysteriously crashed in the mid-Pacific, just outside Hawaii. Furthering these intrigues behind the management of the problems of capitalist overproduction, 
Let's take a look at some interesting points brought forward in a fourth international article entitled America's 60 Families and the Nazis, the Role of the U.S. Nazi Cartel Agreements, written in June 1942 by Art Price. And for the record, I'm well aware that the Fourth International is a Trotskyist organization and newspaper, but I would much rather cite something like this than the plagiarizing libertarian troglodytes trying to make a buck on another fucking book about an American swastika. I've skimmed through maybe 10 of these kinds of books in preparation for this series, and if you thought the ancient aliens canon was a grift beyond measure, this topic might compare in terms of unashamed repetition. Thus I will instead make use of this article by Price, since one, it's sort of a first of its kind regarding the topic being written in 1942, and the only one I could find that dealt with fascism, overproduction and synthetics. Two, the author seems to have been organized in strikes and unions across America for the better part of his life, writing about the struggles of longshoremen, truckers and factory workers, which is more than can be said of Anthony Sutton, for example. Furthermore, I tend to cite quite freely from within the leftist spectrum, and sometimes I even feel compelled to read to you from Blutenboden or Carl Schmitt, so why not let the trots have a go at explaining to us how American monopoly interests, fascism and a ban on cannabis all eventually comes together. And to make everybody happy, I'll also conclude and summarize with a definition by the actual Comintern later. This title uh, of uh, America's 60 Families, I think, is a concept which the author borrowed from Ferdinand Lundberg, who wrote a book about the rise of the American plutocratic circle already in 1937, in which he went after Hearst, Rockefeller, Morgan, Ford, Vanderbilt, Mellon, Guggenheim, Whitney, DuPont and Astor, etc. etc. Alright, here we go. Quote, The consolidation of capital, which at an earlier stage of capitalism served to expand the means of production, now tends inexorably toward opposite ends. As a means of self-preservation, the monopolies must now dive in one general direction. Curtailment and limitation of production in the international as well as domestic sphere. The safeguarding and increasing of profits is the sole objective of the monopolies, of course. Monopoly profit-making requires arbitrary limits to production restricting the output of goods which might glut the market, the elimination of competition. Capitalism in its early progressive stage created the modern national state, within which the productive forces might develop unhampered by feudal restrictions. Today, however, national boundaries have become a noose strangling the productive forces. The capitalists are compelled to reach out beyond the national borders for new markets, sources of raw materials and cheap labor, and especially for new fields for the investment of their surplus capital, hence the war. But the law of monopoly rules even on the international plane. The individual monopolies of every country, while instigating wars to win more of the world's markets and productive resources, at the same time seek to free themselves from competition and to restrict production through inter-nation cartel agreements with the foreign monopolies which their class as a whole aims to subdue by force of arms. 
There is not a single monopoly in any capitalist country which does not have international cartel agreements and which is not attempting to continue these agreements despite the war. Thurman Arnold, uh, and that is the assistant attorney general in charge of the antitrust division in President Franklin D. Roosevelt's Department of Justice from 1938 to 1943, just a note by me, reported on June 3rd that the Department of Justice had, quote, last week, end of quote, a list of 162 agreements between IG Farben Industrie, the German Chemical Trust, and American corporations. In his March 26 report to the Truman Committee on the Standard Oil Nazi Patents Pool Conspiracy, Arnold had to admit, quote, within quote, there is no essential difference between what Standard Oil has done in this case and what other companies did in restricting the production of magnesium, aluminium, tungsten carbide, drugs, dye stuffs, and a variety of other chemical materials vital for the war. End of quote within quote. The same is true of the British, German, Japanese, and French monopolies. An outstanding example is the World Aluminium Cartel, an agreement by the American, British, German, French, and Swiss interests to parcel among themselves the world markets. They pooled their resources, bought up all surpluses and withheld them from the world market, drastically limited world production and fixed the world prices. The chemical and dyestuffs cartel agreement between DuPont and IG Farben also included British Imperial Chemical Industries, the Establiment Kuhlmann of France and the Mitsui interests of Japan. The files of the Standard Oil Company have provided a typical example of such a quote-unquote full marriage, as Arnold called it, of the US Nazi monopoly interests. End of quote. Alright. In terms of theory, I don't find anything particularly wrong about this at first glance. Instead, I will welcome the inclusion of British, German, Japanese and French big ag chem monopolies, since most of us, myself included, tend to lay emphasis on America every chance we get. It's also accurately observed that when approaching the concept of international fascism, it cannot be researched as a monolithic institution, but just as other historical blocks, it is made up of an overdetermination of more or less antagonistic contradictions, i.e. a dialectical situation when and where there are more causes than necessary for a particular effect, in this case, the fascist effect. This was pointed out by Mao in the late 40s in his comparison of the conflicting interests of the national and international bourgeoisie, and how these can be successfully exploited to prolong the dictatorship of the proletariat and defend against capitalist roaders uniting in trusts. In the article we also receive the mention of there being already in 1942 162 relatively confirmed agreements between corporate America and IG Farben of Germany alone, in an expanding total of more nations and more cartels. Furthermore, we have been given the beginning of a theoretical backdrop which relates to this miniseries central economic thesis, namely overproduction and temporary capitalist solutions to overproduction. Price bullet points these manipulations as follows. 1. Restricting the number of producers. 2. Dismantling plants. 3. Limiting production through price fixing. 4. 
prohibitive royalties. 5. Discouraging plant expansion. I have, I believe, throughout the summer, in now five episodes, given historical examples for each and every one of these to explain how natural fibers came to be replaced by synthetics. Synthetics which in themselves are of course another solution, a very important topic of what Jalmar Schacht and others of the circle of friends of the Reich Führer SS called autarky, that is national self-productive sovereignty, which this episode is a stepping stone to. As it is central not only to the fate of cannabis, but also the transition from the first modern agricultural revolution to the second modern agricultural revolution of GMOs, petrochol, tar, chemicals, and the new biology, as well as the domination of plastics, and as such, the economic fate of the munitions manufacturers of IG Farben, Whitney, DuPont, and the Tsaibatsus during the Pax Americana of the fourth Eagle Banner. In the full article, synthetic rubber, synthetic gasoline, and synthetic glass are mentioned on several occasions. Novel materials, the scientific technical access of which belongs to a handful of global oligarchs who steal, share, and trade patents with each other in their organization of that new commodity structure, which eventually had to replace the natural past fiber matrix from a fragile a much too volatile multitude of exotic slave colonies. Let this be a mid-episode summary of the entire podcast series, which might come to serve us later, should we abruptly stop during our conspiracy investigation and say, but hey, why don't the capitalists just make money off the natural fibers rather than restricting them? I mean, they have, and they will again eventually when bioplastics become inevitable, but does capital is more complex than vice and greed. I suggested in a previous episode that the Krupp-Kulak motorization of Europe's largest grain fields in the Ukraine was enough of a destabilizing event to the stock market of agricultural commodity export to cause the Wall Street crash and subsequently initiate the Second World War. I think we will now also begin to see what role synthetics play in this overdetermination. But before we rush to that, as promised, I'll now summarize what in his delivery to the 7th World Congress of the Communist Third International in August 1935, the Bulgarian communist Georgi Dimitrov said when expanding upon the work of Clara Zetkin, the older mentor of Rosa Luxemburg who passed away in exile in Moscow in 1933, quote, Fascism in power was correctly described by the 13th plenum of the Executive Committee of the Communist International as the open terrorist dictatorship of the most reactionary, most chauvinistic and most imperialist elements of finance capital. End of quote. I discussed this definition quite recently with my cousin from the Palma series and we took notice of the first word, open, of the definition which might suggest that there is a crypto-fascist latency which is also all the above, only pressured to remain hidden by popular demand. Interestingly enough, skimming through the full document, I found out that Dimitrov then goes on to elaborate on a difference between our two main subjects in this manner. Quote, 
in distinction to German fascism, which acts under anti-constitutional slogans. American fascism tries to portray itself as the custodian of the constitution and quote-unquote American democracy. It does not yet represent a directly menacing force, but if it succeeds in penetrating to the wide masses who have become disillusioned with the old bourgeois parties, it may become a serious menace in the very near future. End of quote. And contrary to common opinion about communist sectarianism, we see the Comintern in 1935 lining up with the tactics of the last episode's farm revolt when they suggest that, quote, and here it must be said that under American conditions, the creation of a mass party of working people, a quote-unquote workers and farmers party, might serve as such a suitable form. Such a party would be a specific form of the mass people's front in America and should be put in opposition to the parties of the trusts and the banks and likewise to growing fascism. Such a party, of course, will be neither socialist nor communist, but it must be an anti-fascist party and must not be an anti-communist party. The program of this party must be directed against the banks, trusts and monopolies, against the principal enemies of the people who are gambling on the woes of the latter. End of quote. We have already begun to establish that the actors who shut this project down with the brute force of various veteran associations, while the New Deal halted further radicalization of, far- of the farmers uh, well, and the workers, were ultimately the houses of the Guarantee Trust. I mean, it's almost as if the bourgeoisie was reading the open strategy put forward by the Comintern. Though they had already begun before uh, they put this forward in 1935, I guess. So, if we were then to finally begin to focus on the business of the four usual suspects of the hemp conspiracy, we will be answering the early cannabis activist Ginsberg's, though he was other things as well, I know, first set of questions in his poem Howl, whilst, though with less prose, reiterate some of his statements. Quote, what sphinx of cement and aluminium bashed open their skulls and ate up their brains and imagination? Moloch, solitude, filth, ugliness, ash cans and unobtainable dollars, children screaming under the stairways, boys sobbing in armies, old men weeping in the parks. Moloch, Moloch, nightmare of Moloch, Moloch the loveless, mental Moloch. Moloch the heavy judger of men, Moloch the incomprehensible prison, Moloch the crossbone, soulless jailhouse and congress of sorrows, Moloch whose buildings are judgment, Moloch the vast stone of war, Moloch the stunned governments, Moloch whose mind is pure machinery, Moloch whose blood is running money, Moloch whose fingers are ten armies, Moloch whose breast is a cannibal dynamo. Moloch whose ear is a smoking tomb. Moloch who took my soul early on. The Sphinx of Aluminium, which Ginsberg is inquiring about, spoken of also in the previous Trotskyite article as quote, an outstanding example of an international cartel of various aluminium monopolies, end of quote. Though not by personal name, could very well be in the US context Andrew Mellon, 
and his Alcoa, the Aluminium Corporation of America. Who was Andrew Mellon? Well, in short, another in all ways rotten banker, businessman, industrialist and politician who had served as United States Secretary of the Treasury from March 9, 1921 to February 12, 1932. And with so many titles, it is no understatement that Andrew Mellon was a bit of a spider in the anti-hemp conspiratorial web before he died in 1937. I like to imagine that the Cannabis Tax Act of that year was his final wish on the deathbed, brusquely pushing a relative aside so that he could cough it forward through his stained mustache to one of his DuPont-affiliated accountants. Ban the cannabis! <laughs> An industrial web of grain, tobacco, cotton and timber, etc. Grown on the largest categories of acre, as well as steel, aluminium, coal, oil, electricity, railroads, shipbuilding, synthetics and ultimately, as always, war politics. Which is where all Roman roads towards the Capitolium of Profits eventually lead. Serving as Secretary of the Treasury under three different presidents and all of the 20s, Mellon worked harder than anyone to hinder the breaking up of the trusts that would come to control the interwar period. As a consequence, by the end of the 1920s, Ige Faben had regained control over much of its assets seized by the Alien Property Custodian Act, whilst establishing patent exchanges with DuPont and other corporate entities of the conglomerates with which Mellon had financial and political connections, such as Alcoa, of which he became president at the end of the 19th century after having financed its startup with his brother and the Mellon Bank, incidentally, DuPont's primary bank of choice at the time. This alarm is not, uh, you know, due to the, uh, <laughs> due to this peaking behind the scene of the workings of Andrew Mellon. They are only opening the, the dam <laughs> for the lake. But uh, it sounds quite fitting, so I'll keep it in there. But I'm going to pause now, so it doesn't go on forever. <laughs> it does go on forever, but we should leave it out of the episode. No, Marcus. The atomic war has begun. Ah. He was also involved in the aforementioned manufactured rubber shortage. A shortage a shortage which was due in great measure to discouragement of synthetic rubber plant expansion by the Rockefeller DuPont Mellon interests, controlling the synthetic rubber processes during a time when the US was cut off from 90% of its natural rubber. Which again is an interesting story in its own right, but in the context will merely continue to serve as another indication that conspiracies behind the historical transition from natural to synthetic production commodities involves more than cannabis sativa. Closer to the smoking grave that is Moloch, or Melon's soul, we also find then the Aluminium Corporation of America being up to no good, as the 1942 acute shortage of aluminium is again alleged by committee as having resulted from the deliberate efforts of Alcoa. For two years prior to American entry into the war, Alcoa repeatedly reassured the government that no new plants were needed. The Office of Production Management accepted these assurances and passed them on to the public. However, 
according to the Truman Committee report in June 1941, quote, For months, the Defensive Advisory Commission and the OPM had said that talk about a shortage in aluminium was misleading and that it was unpatriotic to talk about the possibility of such a shortage. The OPM had apparently completely relied on Alcoa as a source of information as to the availability of aluminium and had discouraged anyone else from going into the business of producing aluminium. Alcoa had long followed the policy of maintaining high prices and building new capacity only when certain that it could sell at its fixed prices all that would be produced. End of quote. This is sort of interesting, at least to our, or, you know, I haven't touched upon it very much. I haven't touched upon it at all, I guess. Uh, I sort of wanted to leave uh, the story about what hemp can be used for and like, you know, the ecological um, narrative of hemp use uh, to decide and, you know, leave it for you to find out on your own. I'm sure like, you know, if you found this series interesting, you were already interested in it. And it's easy to find, you know, I know, for example, the the, the DV channel, no, sorry, the DW, not the domestic violence channel, uh, the, the DW, uh, the German documentary maker, they have a nice uh, recent doc- short documentary about the uses of hemp. Um, and, you know, in this ecological context, it's interesting because aluminium is like one of the most recyclable of all uh, metals, right? And it's, it actually costs a lot less energy to recycle aluminium than to create new aluminium. Which, uh, yeah, I can't help to think that this has something to do with it as well. And also, you know, believe it or not, a lot of the things that aluminium does can be done by hemp. Especially in terms of construction. But yeah, as I said, I will not touch too much upon that. Because there's so much. <laughs> Anyways, when Alcoa did finally permit the erection of new plants at government expense, it received the lion's share of the contracts. These new plants will not reach full production until 1943 or thereafter, and it would still fail to produce sufficient aluminium for the country's civilian and military needs. So what we are looking at is yet another calculated scarcity enabling Alcoa to maintain its monopoly prices and conform to its cartel obligations. Which is, you know, the main point of why I bring this up, uh, if, you know, concerning the questions of why the restriction of cannabis. George Seldes, the investigative journalist who once interviewed Lenin for the Chicago Tribune, wrote the following to explain why Secretary of Interior Harold Ickles said of the late Mellon on June 26, 1941, quote, If America loses the war, it can thank the Aluminium Corporation of America. That's what he said, and so this is what George Seldes then says, said about that, quote, Only the little seditionists and traitors have been rounded up by the FBI. The real Nazi fifth column in America remains immune, And yet there is evidence that those in both countries who place profits above patriotism and fascism is based entirely on profits, although all of its propaganda speaks of patriotism, have conspired to make America part of the Nazi big business system. Thurman Arnold, assistant district attorney of the United States, his assistant Norman Little and several congressional investigations 
have produced incontrovertible evidence that some of our biggest monopolies entered into secret agreements with the Nazi cartels and divided the world among them. Most notorious of all was Alcoa, the Mellon Davis Duke monopoly, which is largely responsible for America not having sufficient aluminium with which to build airplanes before and after Pearl Harbor, while Germany had an unlimited supply. Of the Aluminium Corporation, Sabotage and that of other leading companies, the press said very little, but several books have now been written out of the official record. Uh, end of quote. Another committee source of information regarding the corporations surrounding the Guaranteed Trust, which ties them to the Fascist International and the production-restricting anti-hemp law of the day, comes from the so-called Senate Munitions Committee of 1934 to 1936, which according to the Senate.gov homepage came into being because of widespread reports that manufacturers of armaments had undoubtedly influenced the American decision to enter the war in 1917. These weapons suppliers had reaped enormous profits at the cost and as local conflicts reignited in Europe through the early 1930s, suggesting the possibility of a second world war. Concern spread that these merchants of death, quote unquote, would again drag the United States into a struggle that was none of its business. The time had come for a full congressional inquiry. And that's basically what they said on government's homepage. Now, I'm sure a few of my listeners are in direct conflict with this accusation, though we would as always hope there was more hardcore evidence on paper to back it up. The fact, though, that only one of the many top hats accused and present at the commission denounced it might give room for suspicion that it was indeed some kind of a limited hangout. It is not often mentioned in the texts on the matter, but Charles W. Deeds of Pratt and Whitney uh, later one of the greatest beneficiaries of Operation Paperclip, as they miraculously stepped onto the scene of rocket science and jet planes in preparation for the Korean War, despite having done, according to themselves, almost no rocket research during World War II. Um, William S. Carpenter of DuPont, George Whitney of J.P. Morgan and Company, and William M. Flock of the New York Shipbuilding Company, were generous in their praise of the committee's hearing room conduct. So, just to, for clarity, that's Morgan, DuPont and the Whitney family praising an investigation that was supposed to show that these three families were at the apex of a parallel state apparatus which had conspired to bring the US into both of the world wars whilst making money off their own nation and those of their enemies' expeditions. But instead, Small incidents have led some authors to believe that, quote, the Congressional Investigating Committee under Senator uh, Chairmanship had just demonstrated to the satisfaction of most Americans that the First World War had resulted chiefly from the mad imperial ambitions of European antagonists and that the United States had been sucked into the conflict through insidious propaganda and the machinations of powerful munitions-making interests, end of quote. Now, however, according to John E. Wiltz, a fairly standard American bourgeois historian, quote, the committee never considered the reasons for the eruption of war in Europe in 1914, 
It never studied Allied propaganda activities during the period 1914 to 1917. It did not operate on the hypothesis that Wall Street financiers or munition makers had plotted American entry into the World War. The committee's attitude was clearly revealed in a news story from Washington on January 4, 1936, where committee officials made it clear that they would not try to establish that the Morgan firm or any of its members had done anything wrong. They would try to show how the machinery of finance and credit, once it was allowed to function in wartime, inevitably tended to drag a creditor nation into the conflict on one or side or the other. End of quote. I mean, which means that when all was said and done, after completing his testimony, J.P. Morgan, his big briar pipe billowing smoke and his face beaming good-naturedly, shook hands with Senator Nye and said, quote, I have had a fine time. I would not have missed this investigation for the world. End of quote. ask then, as I did at some point. But most of these commissions are from before or during the war. Surely there must have been some more thorough investigation after the war. One that could surely be said to be successful. You know, other than this liberal nonsense of, yeah, well, you see, this is just what happens. (laughs) And this is just how the economy works. Well, Much of the post-war investigation into the international cartel business making of the likes of the aforementioned suspects was carried out by OSS researchers. Now, while academia and corporations provided the bulk of the OSS recruits, many members of America's wealthiest families provided another source. Andrew Mellon's son, Paul, served as administrative officer of the Special Operations Branch in London. William Mellon, the son of the president of Gulf Oil, served in the SI branch in Madrid. Another OSS agent from the Mellon family was David Bruce, whose wife was the daughter of Andrew Mellon. Alan Scale, whose wife was a cousin to Bruce's wife, also served in the OSS. The Mellon family was not the only family connected with the Nazis that had members serving in the OSS. 
Morgan's two sons were both OSS officers stationed in London. The DuPont family also had two family members serving in the OSS. Alfred was on one of the top OSS officials in Washington at the French desk. Another seemingly less parapolitical reason for these narration of blind spots in the story about how our contemporary Pax Americana world came to be is of course the media. Though only seemingly, since of course every pilled person knows that it is essential for the banner of the fourth eagle to recognize itself not as a continuation of the third, and as such the very creation of it, but rather the very destroyer of that which must be remembered as a barbaric past, untouched by the light which we today enjoy. Tell me again, Maximus, why are we here? For the glory of the Empire, sir. Ah, yes. Ah, yes, I remember. Do you see that map, Maximus? That is the world which I created. For 25 years, I have conquered, spilt blood, expanded the Empire. Since I became Caesar, I've known four years without war. Four years of peace in 20. And for what? I brought the sword. Nothing more. Caesar, your life, please. Please don't call me that. Come. Please. Come sit. Let us talk together now. Very simply, as men. Well, Maximus. Talk. Five thousand of my men are out there in the freezing mud. Three thousand of them are bloodied and cleaved. Two thousand will never leave this place. I will not believe that they fought and died for nothing. And what would you believe? They Maximus? fought for you. And for Rome. And what is Rome, Maximus? I've seen much of the rest of the world. It is brutal and cruel and dark. Rome is the light. Yet you have never been there. You have not seen what it has become. I am dying, Maximus. When a man sees his end, he wants to know there was some purpose to his life. How will the world speak my name in years to come? Will I be known as the philosopher, the warrior, the tyrant? Or will I be the emperor who gave Rome back her true self? There was once a dream that was Rome. You could only whisper it. Anything more than a whisper, and it would vanish. It was so fragile. And I fear that it will not survive the winter. Maximus, let us whisper now together, you and I. Which means that trying to take the temp of the vibes of a zeitgeist, and in particular the one at the cusp of unhinged yellow journalism in the 30s, when the 20th century was still being forged, a piece of red-hot iron if you like, has been proven a tricky thing to do throughout the research for this miniseries. 
The munitions hearings, which began in the same year of Butler's accusations and which some hoped would put the accused on trial as, you know, merchants of deaths, quote-unquote, was built on an epithet popularized by an expose book of such a title, published in the same year detailing the history of the arms industry, in which DuPont and Whitney are revealed as the creators of the American arms industry and responsible for the majority of American wars hitherto there too since Napoleon. I don't necessarily think uh, that this is an overstatement, but what is interesting is that the title Merchant of Death was indeed an epithet also used by the newspapers which the accused owned. When I went sampling on newspapers.com it appeared frequently, hundreds of times in for example the Hearst Press, such as the San Francisco Examiner. It would thus seem that quote-unquote government by newspaper, as Hearst liked to put it according to one of his official biographers, is not as straightforward as the common notions of mere 1984 censorship would have us believe. And though I think perhaps only psychoanalysis can be successful in mapping this more advanced perception management and guided apprehension of the Kantian faculties of reason, I will give you another example of a famous statement floating around on the conspiracytainment side of the internet about a meeting in the House of Representatives on Friday, February 9, 1917, to be more precise, where Morgan at the time is alleged to have very much taken over the editorial board of the 25 biggest papers in America, which might explain to us why Butler ceased to be a household name and why the munitions hearing was deemed a successful end to the whole story as World War II drew closer. The witness, sometimes together with Morgan, also owned several leftist and even radical leftist papers with the intention of fostering appropriate grievances of their opposition. The Metropolitan, for example, produced the fame of John Reed, perhaps the United States' most famous communist journalist, a common turn functionary and one of only three Americans to be buried in the Kremlin necropolis. And the Metropolitan was at the time of Reed's employment run by Harry Payne Whitney. I sure hope the world's wealthiest are not interested in managing cutting-edge radical leftist media of other formats also today, right? The role of the media apparatus in our contemporary predicament is just like synthetics, a topic in its own right. But concerning our serious subject matter, most of you are probably aware that Hearst appears frequently as an ardent anti-cannabis actor in books and articles on the topic. But rather than paying lip service to that which has already been written about him by such folks, I went out looking for some debunkers which I could debunk myself. But first, let's quickly introduce Hearst as we did Mellon. Grooming the notion of a corporatist state of exception during the 20s and 30s but in particular in the last years leading up to 1937, the Morgan Mellon DuPont Ford and the renegade Hearst controlled press unleashed a propaganda blitz extolling the virtues of fascism as a disciplination of the productive forces in the interest of business. Hearst's news apparatus, the biggest in the world at the time, in particular would go on to become an unofficial outlet of Nazi propaganda 
which Parenti tells us about in his Black Shirts and Reds, Rational Fascism and the Overthrow of Communism. Is this on, by the way? Yeah, yeah I, I feel I'm, 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 there it is. Maybe I have to get a little closer. Can you turn this up at all? No, 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 not for here. Yeah, okay, it's all right. That's it. It doesn't have any projection. You got, you got to stand like this with a, you, you can't get it a little higher, huh? No, never mind. Blank look when it comes. Um, you can see what that we all read. What's happening to the sound of this? Is it is it still on? Oh, there it is. Quote: Italian fascism and German Nazism had their admirers within the U.S. business community and the corporate-owned press. Bankers, publishers, and industrialists, including the likes of Henry Ford traveled to Rome and Berlin to pay homage, receive medals, and strike profitable deals. Many did their utmost to advance the Nazi war effort, sharing military-industrial secrets and engaging in secret transactions with the Nazi government, even after the United States entered the war. During the 1920s and early 1930s, major publications like Fortune, The Wall Street Journal, Saturday Evening Post, New York Times, Chicago Tribune and Christian Science Monitor hailed Mussolini as the man who rescued Italy from anarchy and radicalism. They spun rhapsodic fantasies of a resurrected Italy where poverty and exploitation had suddenly disappeared, where reds had been vanquished, harmony regained and black shirts protected a new democracy. As with Mussolini, so with Hitler. The press did not look too unkindly upon their Führer's Nazi dictatorship. There was a strong give Adolf a chance contingent, some of it greased by Nazi money. In exchange for more positive coverage in the Hearst newspapers, for instance, the Nazis paid almost 10 times the standard subscription rate for Hearst's INS wire service. In return, William Randolph Hearst instructed his correspondents in Germany to file friendly reports about Hitler's regime. Those who refused were transferred or fired. Hearst newspapers even opened their pages to occasional guest columns by prominent Nazi leaders like Alfred Rosenberg and Hermann Göring. End of quote. Many of you certainly know that this was very much the same press which had already begun its demonization and confusion of cannabis sativa L with a series of euphemisms such as devil's weed, Indian weed or the most famous marijuana, etc. As the American Medical Association representative Dr. William Woodward said in his statement to the House of Representatives during the passing of the bill, it was the use of the term marijuana rather than the use of the term cannabis or the use of the term Indian hemp that was responsible, as you realized, probably a day or two ago, for the failure of the dealers in Indian hemp seed to connect up this bill with their business until rather late in the day. So if you will permit me, I shall use the word cannabis and I should certainly suggest that if any legislation is enacted, the term used be cannabis and not the mongrel word marijuana. End of quote. 
Woodward also concluded that much of the facts against marijuana had in fact consisted almost entirely of Hearst's and other sensational and racist newspaper articles read aloud by Harry J. Anslinger. And if one studies the Anslinger folder, as I have, he was probably most often quoting himself, having served as an expert source to the same papers. The debunkers do not generally dwell on the complicated role of the media and how few people actually controlled it already in the 1930s. I mean, the fact that Hitler basically only needed to charm but one mogul to change the lack of the NSDAP should tell us enough. Instead, in the eyes of you know, the professional skeptics, uh, America is always different. Even if an oligarchical stage of development of any social formation does sociologically exist, that only means, according to their not-so-skeptical economics, that those handful of men are the best equipped to wield that kind of power due to their skills in capital accumulation, which we all know is a watertight uh, psychoevolutionary sorting process. Instead, they zoom in on the hempsters' allegations regarding Hearst's economical reasons for backing an anti-hemp conspiracy. Herrers points, uh, for example, you know, the author of uh, The Emperor Wears No Clothes, uh, which many of the activists repeat, is that Hearst was a timber baron. Brian Dunning of the Skeptoid podcast, uh, when confronting this issue, makes an arbitrary distinction about Hearst being a buyer of paper rather than a seller, which I guess is a simplified Smithian way of mistaking multifaceted conglomerates reproducing capital within an already existing commodity structure for something like Baker Smurf always making bread or Newspaper Smurf always making newspapers or Aluminium Smurf only making aluminium. Yeah, you get the point. <laughs> oh, shit. First, um, you know, doing a background check on Dunnings before listening to attentively to what he had to say, I found out that the, he co-founded Bylink. Uh, a business-to-business service provider, and that he has been convicted of wire fraud through a cookie-stuffing scheme for, he, for which he was sentenced to 15 months in prison, followed by three years of supervised release for the company obtaining between 200000 and 400000 through wire fraud. Now, rather than moralizing about that, I feel that he should know, even practically then, that on a certain level of capital reproduction, you need many irons in the fire to survive, and extra legal means to improve your conditions also tend to be necessary. Despite the proof to the contrary, which Dunning tries to lay forward in his article on uh, basic market logics, Hearst did have a lot of investment in the infrastructure behind the material that is paper. Just search Paper Mill and Hearst on newspaper.com and you will see tens of thousands of hits for articles on such deals. Some successful, uh, some not so successful between 1900 to 1940. I found similar proof in four different biographies that already his father was good for some one million acres of land. Now, not sure how much of that was timberland, but one biographer states, quote, 
In addition to developing the lucrative Ontario homestake and Anaconda properties, he had bought the 40,000 acre Piedra Blanca ranch in 1865 for approximately 60 cents an acre and would continue to add huge parcels of land in San Luis Obsipo and Monetary counties, uh, 275,000 acres in all, which uh, abuted the Bay of San Simeon. Through his close friendship with Mexican dictator Porfirio Diaz, he acquired early in the 1880s the one million acre Babicorra branch in Chihuahua for 40 cents an acre, as well as 1,000 square miles in the Mexican states of Yucatan, Campeche and Veracruz. He also invested in Northern California Timberlands, a ranch in New Mexico with James Ben Ali Hagin and A.E. Head, and large acreage in Arizona and Texas. End of quote. These examples make up uh, two forms of the largest scale agricultural categories, uh, that is ranching and timberland, as well as mining of the chemicals which the paper industry depends on. So in terms of market logic, Dunnings, uh, you skeptic, it seems like our man could have had some reasons uh, as a pensioner of economic history. In another of the biographers, we can read, quote, Then, with the reporting of stirring world events after December 7th, punctuated by dramatic fist-sized headlines, so typically Hearst, that excited readers, circulation increased substantially, which in turn produced a boom in advertising sales. To meet the demands of such growth, Hearst acquired outright half a dozen newsprint paper mills in Canada and Maine. Yeah, so that's the timber and mining area where the Whitneys are the biggest players in terms of everything involved from timber and steel being produced to steel and timber being transported on steel and timber. Maybe his good friend William Collins Whitney, whom Hearst personally helped rise in the ranks of the Democratic Party, told him about it. I don't know. And though the world's largest newspaper emporium says in some of its papers that war or trusts are bad, and in some others of its papers that it is good, war and trusts, and owning or having interests in every part of the supply line, made sure they could sell a lot of papers at the highest possible profit. I mean, that's just basic stuff. More debunkers than Dunnings have made the claim that Hearst was only a buyer of paper, and that the very repeated old story of him losing hundreds of thousands of acres uh, of timberland to the Pancho Villa's Mexican rebels during the revolution is false. Unfortunately, most people who write about that story, some even in papers like The Nation, only repeat what Herrer said in the 80s, so I had to spend quite some time with the Hearst biographers and going through Mexican land records on my own to see if there was some substance to this claim or not. The place in question, I believe, is the aforementioned Piedra Blanca Ranch, colonized by Hearst Sr. as a criminal pioneer in Mexican land grabs. Um, but first, here is a sample of Dunning's standard bourgeois economic logic. Quote, the basic argument against Hearst's motivation to conspire against the cheaper alternative to paper is that, as a newspaper baron, he was a buyer of paper, not a manufacturer of it. Typically, buyers are delighted to have a cheaper alternative, or at a minimum, enjoyed 
the reduced prices resulting from a competition-driven price war. If Hearst had been a savvy businessman, he would have been more likely to play both sides against the other in order to secure the best deal for himself. Reduced supplier competition would have created a seller's market in which a buyer like Hearst would have suffered. Increased supplier competition would have created a buyer's market in which major purchasers like Hearst would thrive. Uh, before even getting to the Mexican Piedra Blanca ranch, I found from another biographer uh, a paragraph that again disproves the Smithian-Puritan distinction between buyer and seller. Quote, in 1919-1920, he displayed his talent repeatedly. In regard to his newspapers, he became anxious when the cost of paper rose exorbitantly. He therefore purchased a paper mill along with 20 acres of timberland near Watertown, New York. End of quote. Later, the biographer states that Hearst would eventually, with his, when his mother died, inherit probably one million acre of land. Um, perhaps this is where Herrick got his 800,000 800, acres of timberland from. And finally, in an arbitration series on American-Mexican claims commissions, uh, i.e. a Department of State document collection from the 1940s, I found out that the plots of Piedra Blanca Ranch were made up of, quote, considerable timberland, end of quote. So in conclusion then, Hearst did indeed, as an owner of the means of production, of the logistical infrastructure that we shall call collectively papermaking, with land, pulp chemical mines and machines, have an economic interest in the continuation of a newspaper industry run on timber pulp. That took me a few weeks to establish, and I do not even get paid a fraction of what Dunnings makes nor have I ever been able to embellish hundreds of thousands of dollars, which makes me part angry because he clearly has no passion for our trade, the art of debunking, as the kids call it, but which I refer to as the critique of ideology. But I'm also thankful since without his pathetic attempt at redeeming another scammer, I would not have gone after the evidence. Also, the audience of the Skeptoid podcast is probably no way near as cool as mine, and we need their stupidity to shine even brighter. Don't we, dear listener? If you feel indeed I did a good job and want more debunking of the debunkers rather than endless theory uh, with a capital T, or if you feel I'm balancing it quite well, please write in the comments on iTunes, Twitter, Patreon, or DM or email me, and I'll be less sad about my salary. I really want to know what you think, you know? It's <laughs> it keeps me going.
In addition to confusing the general public and professionals about hemp and narcotics, as well as introducing his American readers to English translations of official NSDAP propaganda, Hearst and his industrialist partners were willing to meet other demands of international fascism, beyond giving the Nazis industrial processes, patents and direct material aid, etc. As we have pointed out, everybody involved in our extended anti-hemp troika, as well as plenty of the other actors of the Guarantee Trust, are also found giving a lot of money to the veteran associations, be it Robert S. Clark's Crusaders, American Legion or the Liberty League, all of which Butler was supposedly meant to lead in their march on Washington. And though they never did march, they did fight against the Comintern and its organizers of the Midwestern peasant uprisings. An extended list of who funded what group and with how much, at least from what is somewhat publicly known, is presented in a book called 1000 Americans, The Real Rulers of the USA, published in 1947 by the aforementioned investigative journalist George Seldes. That was the guy who interviewed uh, Lenin for the Chicago Tribune. The history of veteran associations being formed to perform strike breaks and harassment of labor organizers goes back to the Great Railroad Strike of 1877, the days of the Pinkertons and the robber barons of Pennsylvania's first attempt at a paramilitary police state to control the wage earners with the help of retired military personnel. The same was true of the not-so-retired National Guard, which some historians estimate in the Latin 19th century, as the labor market and the American proletarian came to be, that fully half the activity of which comprised strike-breaking and industrial policing, a phenomenon which we have a similar record of in the early Roman Empire under Julius, Octavian, Marcus, etc., from which Marx did indeed borrow the world proletarian as ex-military men came back home to either be wage earners in regular jobs or wage earners in jobs that controlled those regular jobs with weapons. A topic which I discussed in more depth in an episode with William from the AOS Info Service podcast, which we recorded this winter when we went looking for evidence for a possible first false flag and the origins of anti-communism in a United States with a middle class terrified of the Paris Commune and 
labor movements in general. And this uh, somewhat unexpectedly, as I told William some weeks ago when I found out, brings us to Harry J. Anslinger, the first head of the newly formed FBN, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, which Mellon put there on behalf of the Guarantee Trust to confuse hemp with marijuana. Because it turns out that before Anslinger became a spy in the First World War, and long before he headed the FBN, he was employed by the Pennsylvania Railroad Company, the very heartland of the above-mentioned subject material. In an article from 1989 in the magazine The Pennsylvania Magazine of History, and uh, which praises Anslinger, as is indicated by the title Unsung Partner Against Crime, Harry J. Anslinger and the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, 1930-1962, I found out that, quote, Harry Anslinger's work on the Pennsylvania Railroad so impressed Division Superintendent J. Charles Port that when the latter was called to Harrisburg by Governor Martin G. Brumbaugh to head the state police, he asked Anslinger to accompany him. In September 1916, Anslinger went to the state capital where he was responsible for reorganizing a department and a field force of 2,500 personnel. Why exactly youth work on a railroad company would impress a police superintendent tells me Harry was not just shuffling coal. A suspicion which was confirmed later in the article when this is used as a recommendation for his position in the army. The author tells us that, quote, his railroad experience as a detective and investigator made him highly desirable as an inductee in the armed forces, end of quote. The Pinkertons are not mentioned by name here, but it was indeed them which the biggest competitor to the Pennsylvania Railroad Company, the Philadelphia and Reading Railway Company, had hired to infiltrate the Molly McGuire's, an operation that gave the Pinkertons a name for themselves. The Mollies, for their part, was supposedly a secret society which they possibly completely made up to create what a scholar on American anti-communism refers to as the first anti-communist press story. The consequence of which was far greater than just the birth of yellow journalism as it also involved a long series of long-lasting union-busting laws via the new legal invention of the Reading Company's boss, formalized as, quote, guilt by association, end of quote. A well-crafted, part judicial, part media sensational red scare, which the New York Times happily aided by comparing these supposed sleeper cells of the not-yet-existing Comintern to the thuggies of India, which conveniently was another made-up story used by the British to further expand their repressive apparatus into the Maharaja areas of India, long before you know George Lucas and Indiana Jones refreshed our memories on the topic. Anslinger, furthermore, in his own account, has a similar possible third, then, made-up enemy, beyond Irish communist secret societies and anti-imperial Indian cannibals, that would justify the beginning of America's biggest expansions of its repressive apparatus in the second half of that century. Uh, that is the 20th century. Um, quote, Anslinger's exposure to the kind of men he worked with on the railroad also later affected his behavior as a narcotics commissioner. 
working his summer vacations away from Penn State on a Pensy construction crew landscaping flower beds, he often came in contact with Italian immigrants. Uh, Pensy is the Pennsylvania Railroad, is a nickname for that. Occasionally, he would overhear them talk in broken English of a black hand, quote-unquote. Although he did not know precisely the nature of the organization, he could sense from the context of their conversation that it was a kind of extra-legal society brought from the old country. The Italians did not discuss it openly or in a casual manner. Rather, they spoke of it in Ave. They referred to it as an invisible government that effected a mutual protection for its members and enforced it with violence and brutality. End of quote. The praising article even concludes that quote, Anslinger's story of the Black Hand may indeed have been apocryphal and later exploited for political benefit, but he frequently made reference to it as the basis for his all-out war on the Mafia in the 1940s and 1950s. The Black Hand experience also would induce him to be the first federal law enforcement officer to acknowledge the existence of the Mafia. It was a conviction he held 35 years later when he testified before the Kefauver Senate Crime Investigating Committee that the Black Hand was what the Italian immigrants referred to as the Mafia back in Italy. As an impressionable young man, Anslinger heard about and witnessed the nefarious activities of this secret society. As Commissioner of Narcotics, he became obsessed in his attack on the Mafia and the evil it represented." End of quote. So, Anslinger began his career as a snitch, pretty much. <laughs> and in addition, before that, this would be my wink to Monty and Jimmy's uh, podcast investigation to the nature of young couriers. We have an account from his book, The Murderers, The Story of the Narcotic Gangs, where he says that as a 12-year-old, he had his first contact with addiction when he was told by a farmer to buy a package of morphine for his screaming wife. Granted, morphine was legal back in 1904, but it's still a funny story that one of the first assignments he ever got from an adult, according to himself, was to buy and deliver drugs. More importantly, with his qualifications as an investigator, or snitch, and his ability to speak the fluent German he had learned from his parents, Anslinger was assigned as an attaché in the American legation at The Hague, where he quickly mastered Dutch as well. During his three years in the Netherlands, he performed consular-related work and also participated in the -the behind-the-scenes intelligence reports and investigations. Anslinger's duties assumed new importance in late 1918, as the end of the war appeared imminent. In his capacity as an intelligence gatherer, Anslinger attended social affairs, dinners and garden parties. He mingled with nobility and heads of state, who might willingly or inadvertently reveal some bit of information concerning their country's intentions. When Kaiser Wilhelm II prepared to abdicate his imperial throne, the Netherlands granted him asylum. Anslinger was immediately ordered to Count Bentinik's castle in Amerongen, where the Kaiser would live in exile. According to the young attaché, the American government did not want the Kaiser to abdicate, because, quote, the social democrats would bring on revolution, strikes and chaos, end of quote. 
It was therefore vital that information pertaining to the Kaiser's abdication and what course the Germans would follow be relayed to the right people. Secretary of State Robert Lansing ordered him, quote, not to divulge to any person by word or f- of mouth or in writing, either by letter or telegram, by any other means of communication, your point of destination in Europe, end of quote. Just say don't tell anybody. So annoying. The pleonasms of these people are ridiculous. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> he will, here are a list of ways that you will not tell anybody. <laughs> Do not scribble it on a toilet wall. Do not shout it from a rooftop. Do not put it into Morse code. Do not sign it out with letters of uh, pasta in your tomato soup. (laughs) He was also sent on several other secret assignments. On one of them, he assumed the identity of a harsh-speaking German, bluffing his way past Dutch security guards to gain clearance to travel with the Kaiser's entourage without interference. He later passed himself off as a member of the Dutch intelligence corps in order to relay information to one of the Kaiser's court counselors that abdication was entirely useless and unnecessary. Anslinger carried out his assignment and conveyed the message to the proper authorities, but the Kaiser did not remain on the throne. Again, in his book, The Murderers, and in numerous pieces of correspondence in his papers, Anslinger tells us that he obtained a field utility kit and, quote, certain other minor personal possessions of his imperial highness Kaiser Wilhelm II, end of quote. Throughout his life, though, he would not divulge how it happened, stating only that, quote, it must remain a state secret, end of quote. In 1957, he donated the Kaiser's field utility kit and some other items to the Smithsonian Institution. In another of his personal files, we are told that a message was pushed under his door during one of the assignments, which read, quote, The imperial government welcomes you to the great world conflict, end of quote. Okay. After the war, Anstlinger lived in Hamburg for two years, at the time one of Europe's biggest drug harbors. Then he went on to live in La Guaira, a harbor in the north of Venezuela, classically known for similar reasons, and then on to Bahamas, the then bootleg island par excellence during the prohibition. Um, and as a side note, we know that the witnesses were also involved in this bootlegging from uh, Lucky Luciano's biography, where uh, the Sicilian tells us that, quote, One of my big shot customers was a guy in that Whitney family, the stockbrokers. He was a polo player and he invited me out to his tremendous estate he had in Manhasset, Long Island, to watch him play polo and also to supply the party I was given afterwards. All them society girls gathered around and asked me how we hijacked shipments and how sometimes we would shoot it out with the feds and stuff like that. They listened to me with their eyes wide open like I was some kind of a movie star, like Douglas Fairbanks. I piled it on and they loved it. End of quote. When Anslinger became head of the FBN in the 30s, one of the things that I picked up on as being interesting was his truly international networking. Unlike Hoover, who refused to join Interpol, Anslinger was very much in favor. In 1938, when Congress also finally voted in favor of membership after many years of caution, Hoover, later that same year, 
cut off all ties with the organization when Germany annexed Austria and Czechoslovakia. Anslinger, on the other hand, according to his biographer, maintained an informal association with it until 1958, whatever that might mean. Furthermore, long before the United States formally joined Interpol in 1958, in 1931, he organized and coordinated for eight years a committee of 100, a highly secret panel to function as a mini-Interpol of chief narcotics enforcement officers from London, Cairo, Ottawa, Rotterdam, Berlin and Paris. As far as the records go, the committee remained operative until 1939, when World War II disrupted European and global affairs. But Anslinger, according to himself, quote, always held a special interest in the concept of narcotics intelligence, end of quote, which made possible what his admirers called, quote, Anslinger's foresightedness, end of quote, which made sure that he realized several years before the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, that global war would have an adverse effect on the flow and distribution of narcotics. In the next few years, Anslinger made purchases of the precious painkiller drug from sellers in Turkey, Yugoslavia, Bulgaria and Afghanistan. By 1940, the Narcotics Bureau had stockpiled 300 tons of opium in the treasury vaults in Washington which had become vacant when the gold reserves were transferred to Fort Knox. Normally, 77 tons of cured opium were legally imported annually. Anslinger had hoarded enough to last nearly four years, which according to my base economics made him the biggest sole investor in that global network, which he publicly vowed to destroy. It seems to me that World War II made Anslinger one of the biggest drug lords in the game. Even the casualties suffered by Allied armies did not exhaust the Bureau's 300-ton opium stockpile, much of which was still intact after the war. Some of the drug was allocated for use at veterans' hospitals. The unused supply remained locked in the treasury vaults. And, I mean, 300 is what we know. The effect of Anslinger having virtually cornered the opium market during the war years was staggering. The price soared an incredible 300%. Anslinger's notion that narcotics addiction and communism were synonymous, inseparable evils, by the 40s, was later contradicted when he was forced to personally meet Joseph McCarthy about this ex-marine intelligence operator's morphine addiction. Anslinger instructed agents to contact McCarthy to persuade him to accept medical treatment. When McCarthy flatly refused any suggestions to seek help, Anslinger confronted the addict himself. McCarthy was intractable. He defied Anslinger to cut off his source of supply and threatened to go directly to the pushers if the narcotics bureau interfered with his habit. Realizing the power McCarthy wielded and the potential for public scandal that Anslinger feared would uh, embarrass the country, Anslinger agreed not to force McCarthy into hospitalization or to expose him. Instead, Anslinger secured a pledge for him not to go to the pushers. In return, McCarthy would be supplied with all the drugs he needed. Anslinger was apparently uncomfortable with the arrangement, but rationalized his action on the premise that he was acting out of loyalty to his country. He also justified maintaining the addict's habit because he could control the supply, since the prescriptions would be filled by Anslinger's own personal pharmacist. 
whatever the logic, he became a de facto high class pusher.
hypocrisy of this story blew me away the first time I heard it. But, when one thinks about it, of course anti-communism is grounded in unhinged morphine paranoia. That is, when one thinks about it, which the biographers of McCarthy do not, not as much as a mention. We must not dwell on Anslinger for too long, because that will send us down every possible rabbit hole of Anslinger's connections. Like, for example, that he and his second-in-command George White set up many of the OSS MK4 runners already in the 40s looking for a truth serum with cannabis and that famous Operation Midnight Climax. Which is why it is said by some researchers that if eventually Dr. Gottlieb made the madness of FBN agents like White, Siragusa and Dr. Kligman possible, Harry in turn made Gottlieb possible every day of his working life filing certain papers in certain compartments of the bureau and sweeping others under the rug. His hatred for cannabis and his anti-communism and the inevitable maturing merger of the red hemp weed invasion tells us enough. Such as when he tells the Akron Beacon Journal on April 26, 1952 under the headline Red China Waging Drug War. Quote, America's top narcotics sloth accused Red China today of drug warfare against the United Nations in the Far East. He said the Oriental commun- communists had a two-fold purpose, selling habit-forming drugs to finance party activities and buy war materials, and spreading drug addiction to undermine morale of US and other troops in the Far East. End of quote. Anslinger identified a communist official named Pu in what was then called Peking who was, quote, training 4,000 Chinese communists to smuggle drugs direct to Japanese workers, collect the funds, distribute a share to the Communist Party in Japan, and purchase war materials, end of quote. By the time the domino theory was explicitly articulated by President Eisenhower in 1954, Anslinger described the mission of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics as, quote, smashing red China's fifth column, end of quote. Theater mate North Korea was also implicated when he told the UN in a paper entitled quote, Red Chinese Accused of Drug Wars on GIs, end of quote. Quote, 
Harry J. Anslinger, U.S. Narcotics Commissioner, drew what he said was a clear pattern of red Chinese and North Korean links with Japanese communists to produce and smuggle opium products, push them through streetwalkers and brothels, and smash the resistance of U.S. soldiers by making them narcotics addicts. End of quote. All right, enough of the man's personal life. Did we find out if he was actually a German spy? Maybe not. But when you as a German speaker is put in contact with the Kaiser and your mission fails, the Caesar did abdicate after all, and you are in connection with this, given personal gifts, the reason of which pose a state security, and you recall in your memoirs under a headline of humorous incidents, personal welcoming messages to the great world conflict written by the German secret police. Odds are that you are a German spy. But perhaps the best way is to think of him as a truly international narcotics intelligence head for interests above national borders. And just as Tony Montana and McCarthy, Anslinger, after having stockpiled what was possibly the world's biggest reserve of opiates hid there too, he ended his life a morphine user, high on his own supply. But we are not here to talk about who can take the most drugs. I wonder why. And what does that mean, Sabu? It means that you take half a knee and you wet your little knickers. I've seen you in a field, naked, with just a sock and a whistle. You thought you were in the shining. I was on antibiotics for an earlier condition. Oh, Sean J. Ladisk. What about that time you had free expressos? We found you in the corner, weeping, trying to peel yourself like a satsuma. I had an itch. I was itching my arm. Hmm? I changed washing powders. It had flared up. You used a glue gun one for some simple DIY, and you thought you saw the black dog. I thought that was black dog. Look, when it comes to drug taking, I think you'll find Kirk leaves us all in the dust. I mean, what is he looking at? Nobody knows. Kirk is journeying far into the astral realm. He's off his tits. He's on the shores of oblivion. Kirk, if you can hear us, simply nod. Kirky? K-man. Kirk! Enough of this. Let us return to the matter of shamanic justice. Why we really bring this up is because, again, that it points to the most rudimentary logic of imperialism and state monopoly as such. Namely, in the most prototypical sense that... Once upon a time, violence was outlawed with violence. Thou shalt not kill is a taboo, but also a primordially foreclosed promise by a social formation with an autocratic monopoly on killing. A control which in terms of the drug serves a long series of purposes, primarily together with golden art as an international currency for the Black Eagle Fund when they needed to start paying stay-behind armies to enclose the two major hemp-growing countries of the globe and make sure that others did not become that red bloc's export partners. But the time has come to return to the beginning, to fathom the end. We need to understand Anslinger's Marijuana Tax Act in connection with the Hemp for Victory campaign. And tying this together... I will let go of the general story of the hempsters. In one of the very last articles I managed to track down was written instead by the enemy, and one would be wise to read what the enemy has to say. As I have said before, when one reaches a point of substantial theory of one's own, one no longer needs reality, and one can test it in the field. And what better way than to lock horns with the US Department of State? 
my word of advice is keep your social media a safe bubble of friends and like-minded people. Don't argue on the internet with the troglodytes, but instead secretly read what their masters have to say. In an article entitled Harry Anslinger Saves the World, National Security Imperatives and the 1937 Marijuana Tax Act, written by a McAllister of the Special Projects Division Chief in the Office of the Historian, Department of State, we can read the following. Quote, by the time the MTA, that is the Marijuana Tax Act from now on, came before Congress for consideration in mid-1937, most states had already adopted the Uniform Act, including optional clauses that applied the law's provisions to marijuana. Why then did the government still deem the Tax Act necessary? Even more confusingly, Anslinger stated publicly that he would not seek additional resources, and the FBN budget did not increase markedly after 1937, rather than concentrating on individual users or street dealers. The commissioner instructed his field officers to prosecute major suppliers and interstate traffickers. And Anslinger de-emphasized the sensationalist press articles he had stimulated over the three years prior to the law's passage. End of quote. Alright, so far he is asking if weed was already illegal and the FBN was not domestically expansionist, why the tax act, right? Alright, we go on. Quote. Most fundamentally, why did the 1937 Act define with excruciating exactitude that only certain parts of cannabis sativa constituted marijuana under federal law, and then, rather than prohibit those portions, place them under provisions analogous to the 1914 Harrison Narca- Narcotics Act? Question mark. Section 1b states, uh, quote within quote, The term marijuana means all parts of the plant cannabis sativa L, whether growing or not, the seeds thereof, the resin extracted from any part of such plant, and every compound, manufacture, salt, derivative, mixture, or preparation of such plants, its seeds, or resin. But shall not include the mature stalk of such plant, fiber produced from such stalks, oil or cake made from the seeds of such plant, and any other compound, manufacture, salt, derivative, mixture, or preparation of such mature stalks except the resin extracted therefrom, fiber, oil or cake, or the sterilized seed of such plant which is incapable of germination. Emphasized added. Uh, end of quote within quote. Why then did the MTA impose minimal controls over the non-resinous stalks, uh, sterilized seeds and derivatives not considered marijuana under the law? What caused this remarkable volte-face from federal attempt to avoid taking direct responsibility for marijuana control to creation of a complex, carefully parsed national policy enforced by the FBN? Bureaucratic, racial and social drivers existed well before and after the crucial mid-1930s period that produced the MTA. Thus they do not necessarily fully explain the law's provenance and especially its provisions. End of quote. Okay, I think section B here is intentionally confusing. Uh, First of all, since it says marijuana means all parts of the plant, cannabis sativa L, and then goes on to say, but shall not include, and pretty much talks about the majority of the biomass of the plant. Uh, The author himself then goes on to say that this uh, uh, volte i.e. 180 turn in attitude, 
of making it a federal issue cannot be fundamentally explained by Hearst and Anslinger's racism that had made up the majority of the press on the subject for much of the 20s and 30s. Uh, I think it can. I mean, I don't understand why. Yeah, there's no point like in like trying to <laughs> put that under the rug. But uh, yeah, uh, he instead points towards quote a fully contextualized understanding of pre-war policymakers' geopolitical Weltanschauung provides an essential additional perspective to understand the provenance of the law. Beginning with passage uh, of the 1920 National Defense Act, War Department planning included identifying crucial raw materials necessary to fight an an industrialized multi-year war. The US could not supply from domestic sources many of those substances adequately and in a few cases not at all. Numerous destabilizing factors contributed to a worsening international security outlook by the mid-1930s. Consequently, in April 1934, the War Department promulgated confidentially within the government for the first time an official detailed list of strategic and critical materials essential to the defense of the nation, regularly updated in subsequent years. The Army-Navy Munitions Board defined strategic materials as essential to the national defense for the supply of which in war dependence must be placed in whole or in part on sources outside the continental limits of the United States and for which strict conservation and distribution measures will be necessary. End of quote. Now, fortunately for the comprehensibility of our story, it was the Treasury Department, that is Anslinger's Department, which took responsibility in early 1937 for acquiring, transporting and storing these strategic materials. The initially secret list of critical materials states uh, in terms of hemp that Abaca would play a prominent role and still did when the 1939 critical list made the whole project official. The Army-Navy Munitions Board periodically canvassed the armed services for their manila fiber requirements. And as we know very well by now, practically the entire world's supply of abaca came from the Philippines, primarily around Davao in Mindanao. Although the United States exercised political uh, authority over Mindanao, Japanese organizations increasingly penetrated local real estate and commerce until they controlled both production and marketing of the precious Manila hemp. Around the same time, Many participants in the ongoing secret military debates about War Plan Orange, uh, which was the planning for a possible war with Japan, which had begun with informal studies as early as 1906, concluded that in any future conflict with Japan, the United States could defend the Philippines, could not defend the Philippines, sorry. By 1934 to 1935, war planners had to assume that the Japanese would cut off the nation's supply of abaca shortly after the hostilities began. In 1933, general staff calculations revealed that waging a two-year war would require nearly 100,000 tons of abaca. In subsequent years, estimates of two-year need range from 50,000 to 170,000 tons, as planners adjusted their figures in light of demand, supply and conservation substitution estimates. Nevertheless, the overall situation remained bleak, 
especially as the pace of rearmament increased. Navy Abaca consumption skyrocketed from 1,483 tons in 1935 to 8,346 tons during January and November 1941. At best, the military could secure supplies sufficient for barely six months of operation on a war footing. Moreover, Manila hemp fell into a small category of perishable strategic items that significantly reduced the efficacy of stockpiling. The fiber deteriorated fairly rapidly, limiting its shelf life to two years. In a worst-case scenario, the country would suffer a baka shortage only a few weeks after hostilities commenced. Now, sounds like the Second Reich in 1914, right? Well, let's see. Even before the US entered the war, the board curtailed Philippine abaca exports and controlled which countries were allowed to import. The board parsimoniously distributed relatively small quantities of manila fiber to Canada and the UK in response to repeated appeals but rejected Soviet requests and blocked Abaka shipments to Japan. As we know, the Agriculture and Commerce Departments contracted with the United Fruit Company to grow Abaka in Panama and Costa Rica, but initial plantings produced low yields of inferior quality. As a consequence of the Abaka problem, the War Department included three other key foreign-produced cordage-related hard fibers on the strategic critical materials list. Jute, sisal and hennequin, unfortunately all non-temperate exotic colonial goods. Government agencies supported research into blending abaca with those hard fiber substitutes, as well as additional soft fiber options, in order to stretch the supply. The US government imposed draconian abaca saving measures after Pearl Harbor. By 1944 the situation was so acute that the Federal Register put out an order that prohibited Manila hemp in rope used to carry out court-ordered executions by hanging. Of course, this is where we get to the much-anticipated story of the Hemp for Victory campaign. I might have dismissed it somewhat dramatically as a failure in the last episode, but this new Department of Defense material crystallizes that neglecting light uh, and I'm not worse than I can change, especially since my point was the immense necessity for Abaca and the Marines' colonialism as a bigger project than domestic hemp production, which it still seems that it very much was. And to be quite frank, well, there might be some other reasons for this Hemp for Victory campaign as we will see towards the end. But let's get into it. As we know, American hemp agriculture was almost extinct by the 1930s due to cheapness of colonial thieving and subhuman bondage and all things that we have <laughs> talked about in these five episodes. Only a few hundred hectares of cultivation continued in relatively remote areas, scattered primarily across Kentucky, Minnesota, Illinois and Wisconsin. Remember, only a few hundred hectares, they say and the USSR is looking at reaching 600,000 hectares. Thus we see in RG179 War Production Board Policy Documentation File Boxes 1796-97-544.21 that, quote, it would be necessary therefore to exponentially increase US farmers' capacity to produce hemp seed 
to encourage cultivation by re-educating farmers and providing price guarantees and to build multiple processing plants to render the harvested stocks into raw fiber, end of quote. Again, the Treasury Department played a key role in strategic materials calculations because it served as the chief facilitator of government procurement. No archival document has yet come to light that indicates precisely when Commissioner Anslinger learned about the Abaca cordage hemp issue, but the strategic materials dilemma constituted the most important consideration in the configuration of the MTA's provisions, as well as its implementation. At least this is the story that we are being told here by the Department of State. In the records of the Office of the Secretary of Agriculture, General Correspondence of the Office of the Secretary Box 2005, labeled simply hemp, which you know, if any of my American listeners have you know, nothing better to do, I would love to see it completely scanned, because I can only retrieve a couple of documents. Anyway, so here we can read that the Agricultural Department's response in a series of letters between the FDA and the FBN raised a key question. Was it necessary to regulate the entire plant to ensure effective drug control? Question mark. Consequently, Anslinger arrived at some agricultural conclusions about how to deal with the three principal controlled substances of the day. This is interesting. He stockpiled thousands of coca plants in Puerto Rico. Coca, like a cocaine, not chocolate. <laughs> in uh, case cultivation became necessary. Mm -hmm. With regard to opium, Anslinger operated heavily guarded test plots designed to maximize domestic production on the smallest possible acreage mm -hmm. and made preparations to begin large-scale poppy cultivation if necessary. He also proposed legislation designed to ensure that the federal government could regulate the production of the necessary but dangerous agricultural products. Now do you see why I want this document scanned, my friends? Uh, and I might hear, regarding drugs once again, that Anslinge quickly realized, just as the Nazis did, according to the book Blitz, that cannabis does not lend itself very well to chemical white powder production, as does poppy and coca. However, the specter of massive domestic hemp cultivation put forward by the strategic materials dilemma tipped the scale in favor of federal regulation and galvanized Treasury Department officials to face the approaching challenges. FBN field agents engaged in numerous discussions with hemp farmers and processors. Anslinger took particular interest, as have we, in reports about entrepreneurs trying to sell decortication devices designed to mechanize the labor-intensive process of extracting the fiber from the plant. Quote, we discussed every angle of the marijuana situation whereby the federal government could control production and distribution. Well, I'm sure you did. Anslinger then went on to produce a precise definition of what constituted marijuana as described in the law, while still exempting the parts required in great quantity to meet wartime fiber needs. The Treasury, Agriculture and Commerce Departments then began controlling access by requiring cultivators to sell all produce to government-approved entities in order to receive seeds for planting. Not even the Soviet Union does that, okay? <laughs> As you remember, it's about 18%. Here it's 100%. 
As mentioned earlier, this plan was not made public until 1939, and for this reason, according to the Department of State, the MTA of 37 could not acknowledge the centrality of the strategic materials issue, and thus they conclude that Anslinger resorted to emphasizing long-standing concerns about race, addiction, public health and law enforcement to justify passage of the law. I would say that his fascism is present in both aspects. One public, that of the public enemies, uh, the, the junkies, etc., and the pushers, and one secret, that of the secret war planning. The DOS instead concludes by saying that it was for this reason that the Treasury, quote, avoided discussion of the strategic materials issue and the related topic of expanding agricultural production and control over seed stocks, end of quote. Again, another reason for this, as we know from previous episodes, is that control over seed stocks of many kinds, legal and illegal plants alike, will become publicly crucial to the new biology and the green revolution of Rockefeller and Ford after the war. The DOS goes on, quote, The few who understood the secret motivations for the law therefore supported portraying marijuana as a dangerous substance which enabled already sympathetic House and Senate committees to provide unquestioning support. The interventions of representatives and senators in the congressional record suggest that the fate of the MTA was overdetermined, which makes sense if one reads the hearings in their proper national security context. Only subsequent events revealed the full array of factors driving the law's approval. End of quote. When the law passed and the war grew closer, Anslinger then coordinated efforts of the FBN with Agriculture, War Department and FBI officials, using Navy Requisition Authority to commander seed supplies with the threat to, quote, treat the crowd rough if they try any funny business, end of quote. They placed hemp seed supplies under armed guard then reinforced extent controls over seed distribution and delivery of agricultural products. And, as we know, we see the same thing happening with various cereals in the Ukraine right now. In early 1942, the federal government efficiently instituted the War Hemp Program, which put over 150,000 hectares into production. The provisions attendant to the MTA enabled the FBN to monitor cultivation and trade. Government regulations required farmers and processors to register with the Bureau and account for seeds received, crop harvested and disposal of leaves, tops and stems. However, as I discussed before, the records show and the author admits as much that the war hemp program suffered from a variety of difficulties and did not meet production expectations. Interestingly enough though, which points towards more cynical intentions of the program, Anslinger opened what is known as the diversion file in 1939 and laid out his long-term agenda clearly. And I quote Harry J. Anslinger. Please keep a memo of case numbers of diversion from registered dealers. Also other cases where it is grown and diverted by farmers not registered. We may want this information when we go to Congress to amend the MTA to prohibit all growth. 
I'll repeat that last part. We may want this information when we go to Congress to amend the prohibition of all growth. End of quote. And I think here we have the answer, which we have been looking for since the beginning of the series. Since, as it says in the preface of a contribution to the critique of political economy, quote, no social order ever perishes before all the productive forces for which there is room in it have developed, and new higher relations of production never appear before the material conditions of their existence have matured in the womb of the old society itself. Therefore mankind, and the likes of Harry J. Anslinger, and the forces behind him, always sets itself only such tasks as it can solve, since, looking at the matter more closely, it will always be found that the tasks itself arises only when the material conditions of its solutions already exist or are at least in the process of formation." End of quote. And as we know, the solution did exist. It came about that very year. Synthetics from the factories in the core would come to replace monocrops in the colonies of the periphery. Motors would be attached to the mechanical means and with them petrol and petrochemicals. But the oligarchs needed the war to organize their cartels and perform the productive logistics of this transition to the agriculture of the fourth eagle. The state corporate organization of cannabis production and its simultaneous documentation of subversives of that industry bought this Caesaristic social formation time to prepare the world for nylon. And to end this episode and miniseries, and to say something about where we will eventually be heading, though not mentioned by the Department of State author, the aforementioned 1934 confidential detailing of a list of strategic and critical materials necessary for American war efforts, just so happens to coincide with the 1934 Neue Plan by Jalmar Schacht, the German Nazi mirror image of the exact same ambitions. In an American Business Insider article from 1934, an author is impressed by the prospect of this new project and tries to convince his readers of the dawn of the era which he believes is constituted by the aim of autarky through synthetics. And so autarky again is the national socialist dream of complete sovereignty. The second point that inspires the writer is a new focus on plant breeding, which is making headway in front of Rockefeller's genetic ambitions at Caltech. And one plant seems to stand out more than any other, a plant which a few years earlier had been a pretty much unknown forage crop from the Orient, but which one day would dominate the American landscape and become the pinnacle of the Green Revolution and the new biology, and which now in 1934 had caught the interest of Henry Ford, as well as German scientists at the Kaiser Wilhelm Society, known to the Chinese not as the big hemp, i.e. cannabis, but the big bean. Most of us know it as the soybean. And though it may not be crystal clear what synthetic fiber has to do with soybeans, I think the death of the inventor of nylon, Wallace Carothers, does tell us about this. You see, the interregnum of the first and second agricultural revolution did not only depend on the eradication of cannabis and new synthetic substitutes, nor the motorization of that which had been mechanical. 
The invention of nylon was also the first indication of corporate appropriation of science as such in America. It is hard to find information about Wallace Carothers and why exactly he drank a bottle of cyanide right after having invented this new fiber. But in a book called The Physics of Wall Street, which deals with this new financial interest in making agriculture scientific, as they say, we find out that Wallace was hired by DuPont under the lie that the department he would be heading was a pure research facility. Naive, we might say. However, in the beginning it did seem like that was the case, a pure research lab. Then in 1930, Carothers' team had two major breakthroughs. First they discovered neoprene, a synthetic rubber. Later that same month they discovered the world's first fully synthetic fiber. Suddenly the research team had the potential to make real money for the company, fast. And DuPont's leadership took notice. As the book The Physics of Wall Street says, quote, This process was essentially new. As much as nylon represented a major breakthrough in polymer chemistry, DuPont's commercialization program was an equally important innovation in the industrialization of basic scientific research. A few important features distinguished the process. First, it required close collaboration among the academic scientists in the central research unit, the industrial scientists in the various departments' research divisions, and the chemical engineers responsible for building a new plant and actually producing the nylon. As the different teams came together to solve one problem after the other, the traditional boundaries between basic and applied research, and between research and engineering, broke down. End of quote. Now, despite the industrialization of basic research having already begun some 30 years earlier by the constituents of the not yet existing IG Farben, as they ended the last trading monopolies of the British Empire, and by accident invented Big Pharma, it is nonetheless my understanding that this is why Wallace, just like Fritz Haber's wife Clara Imava, took his own life. He saw what had become of his research and how it would be used by the fascists, just as Imavar's research, to reach higher, purer state corporate levels of Caesarism. As DuPont themselves said in their annual report to their stockholders in 1937, when nylon was invented and its historical predecessor for millennials was banned, quote, the revenue-raising power of government may be converted into an instrument for forcing acceptance of sudden new ideas of industrial and social reorganization. End of quote. What might have caused them to think like this is a question that has been haunting me for a long time. And I'll end today's episode by first thanking from the bottom of my heart all the new patrons and all the old ones. Thank you so much for making me do this. I hope more will climb on board and I'll continue to do my best to convince you that three to four dollars is a small price to be paid. I'll now share something from my youth that can serve as an outro. In the early years of the second millennium, I as a young man took for some reason to climb the half-finished skyscrapers of Shanghai. High above the clouds on the rooftops of towers of the neon god, I gazed out over the world's metropolis. 
beneath my dangling feet on the edge of an unfinished balcony in a penthouse so far made of mere concrete foundation. Multicolored light in immense accumulation appeared in gaps between the clouds against a dark, dirty background. With a tent, hammock, wine and a thermos of hot water for instant noodles, I watched suns and moons set and rise. At times when the altitude was high enough to drown the cityscape sound of houses to the horizon being forever built, I would wonder. And if you are born after the first half of the last century, you must have been with me up there in thought and geist, pushing me further, asking questions like Peter Tosh about the shitstim of this mad material world. How it was that Babylon came to be made out of plastic, Allergy-causing plastic, carcinogenic plastic, everlasting plastic that refuses to decay, humiliating mankind's obedience to death and thus her love, while they cook us slowly but steadily. How did it come to this? Your whispering spirits inquired, together with mine up there high above it all. Long was the path until I would begin to stumble upon answers and conclusions. Far-stretching was the landscape to be walked filled with waste. An insane accumulation of waste. But as we are gathered here today, ready to make our leave, my assumption is that it began with the project of fascist autarky at Kaiser Wilhelm Institute. As pedantic minds thought about how they could artificially create a world in which they would never have to depend on anyone else ever again. Not their neighbors, not other cultures or nations, not even nature herself. Hypocritic as always, as they would come to steal for themselves and their international backers. The substantial part of this research from the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics and at the same time adding insult to injury, would begin to shit-talk that genetic research legacy, and in particular, create a monster out of Lysenko. But that is a story for a time not yet come. Ett varmt hav jag alltid badar ner i Det går ett tåg jag alltid ska med Jag har ett garage där jag smiter ner i Det finns en film jag alltid vill gå och se Det är så här jag kan sluta när jag vill Jag kan sluta när jag vill Jag kan sluta precis när jag vill Jag kan sluta, sluta när jag vill 
Varför smiter du alltid ner i samma garage? Vad är det för fel du inte kan sluta se? Varför går du alltid och gånger samma gånger? Vad är det för tåg som du måste med? Och det är så här jag kan sluta när jag vill. Jag kan sluta när jag vill Jag kan sluta precis när jag vill Jag kan sluta precis när jag vill Sluta när 